please turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is a very well-known story. I think pretty much everyone in this room knows whether you've grown up in the church or not, you're familiar with Christianity or not, or even you may not even be familiar with the Bible, but you are probably familiar with the story of David and Goliath. It's the little guy versus the big guy, the, under, the, the best, biggest underdog story that we see within the Old Testament. It's one that we are very familiar with, and today I hope that we can, we can stop and look at this story a little bit differently, uh, because we're going to see that, that there's other characters in the story besides just David and Goliath. I'd like to highlight some of the other characters in the story as we're talking about this uh, series entitled Shattered, and we've been taking scenes throughout the book of 1 Samuel and looking at these episodes, if you will, and seeing that it's, this in some ways is a messed up book. This is a book about messed up lives. Now, I don't know about you, but it's nice sometimes to hear other stories about people that struggle. I remember when I first became a Christian, every story that I read, it was like these people never, ever struggled with anything in their lives. And it it bugged me because I was like, I I felt awful that I had struggles. And it's like, I I wanted to see just who God was. And I'd read these biographies and, and, and it's like these people never had doubts. They never went through difficulties. Their marriages were perfect. Their children were perfect. I couldn't relate to it. But I started looking deeper and away from those biographies and actually looking at the scripture itself, and I actually saw within the scripture it was much more realistic than made people try to put it out to be. People almost wanted to apologize and make their lives seem perfect because they, the God they follow is perfect, but they didn't realize that it's a perfect God for imperfect people. And, and the Bible is speaking to the entirety of our lives and all of the difficulties and struggles and sins that in which we have done and find ourselves because, you know, our God is the God of second chances. Our God is the God of U-turns. Our God is the God who can come back and take the mess of our lives and put it back together again. And we see that within 1 Samuel time and time again. These are less than ideal situations in which people find themselves, difficulties and struggles they're going through, and yet God works and God calls them and God leads them to accomplish his purposes. Now, as we delve into this book, I was reminded of this article that I saw this past week, or I'd seen this past week. Maybe you saw it. It was on CNN.com, and it was talking about, uh, and if I can make, make sure that I get the article title tight, but it was Fear in Voting on the Christian Right. Now, I'm always curious when I see Christianity portrayed in the, the uh, popular media or mainstream media, and this one was talking about how Christians today, in the United States especially, are scared. Because of what's going on in our culture, we see all these different things that are going on, and, and uh, whether we see you know, different lifestyles are being trumpeted, we see uh, the proliferation and uh, abortion that's going on, we see people can't even pray at a football game any longer, and, and there's just all of this confusion that's going on in the world, and Christians are scared because they see just what's been going on in politics and in the culture, and they're getting nervous. Now, I, I kind of laugh at this because they're nervous, because, and many are nervous, because they're used, they've grown up in an environment of what I like to call cultural Christianity. It's where Christianity was kind of the majority, if you will. And if you were, if you'd grown up in the United States, you can probably uh, remember not just someone who was a Christian, but you could recall someone who went to the Baptist church or the Methodist church or, or the Presbyterian church, and everybody had all their different churches. But today, we have a harder time finding people that, period, just go to church, because the culture shifted. I mean, even within our own culture in West Aurora, Hinduism is growing greatly. We have four Hindu temples in West Aurora now. I mean, there, there's a, there's a, we have a, one mosque, we have one Jewish temple, and we have all these different religions that are coming in. And so cultural Christianity, meaning that this, this influence of the Christian so-called elite is dying out. 
And actually, I'm, I'm welcoming that because people would become Christian because it was culturally acceptable and advantageous for them. And what we see now replacing it is actually more of a biblical form of Christianity called confessional Christianity, where we are standing fast in the word of God. And we are realizing and recalling the truths of scripture once again, that we are exiles and aliens in this world, that we are strangers on this earth, on this earth and this world is not our home. And I think it's a good thing for us to see um, and see where the lines really are and stand for Christ. I'm not saying it's good that immorality is increasing, but it is good that people are seeing what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's encouraging to me. But I think many of us, though, still have lost our confidence. We're scared. I think we have this shattered confidence in what God is doing and in our own lives and, and who we are as followers of Jesus. And, you know, the delightful thing is, is the word of God is for us. The word of God is for all of us who struggle with these, these, these very issues that we're talking about today. And today we're going to look at a situation and where we see that there has different people, their responses to who God is and what he is doing in the world. There are some that are just confident in God. There are some that are just scared and afraid. There are some that are jealous. There are some that are boastful. And we're going to see how we can look at their, li- we're going to look at their lives and see what God has for each of us and how we can recover a godly confidence and walk in the way that is pleasing in his sight. So let's, let's jump into this wonderful text. But before we do, let's spend a moment and ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, we come before you, opening up ourselves to you, Lord. We ask that you reveal all of the struggles and sins in our life. Bring them to the forefront that we might confess them, repent of them, and receive forgiveness. And Lord, teach us what it means to be a true follower of you, that your name might receive glory and we might increase in joy. And Lord, for where, where there's sin, I pray that you convict us that we might forsake it. And Lord, if there are people here today who have not yet come to the saving knowledge of you, or perhaps, Lord, they have turned their back on you, Lord, I pray that you bring them to yourself, that show them that you are the God of love, you are the God of truth, and you are the God who will accomplish his purposes, even when everything seems to go haywire around us. We thank you and praise you for what you've done and what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and Gloria read a segment for us, but I'm going to ask you to kind of keep your fingers nimble. We'll be going back and forth between uh, chapter 16 and chapter 17. And, and if, we can, if we need to really understand and explore this confidence, we need to understand the difficulties that we face, first of all. As believers in Christ, we're going to have difficulties that test our confidence each and every day of our lives. And that, we see that played out dramatically with what is going on in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So look at 1 Samuel chapter 17 with me for a moment, would you? Now it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, um, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in the battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountains on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Now, this is where we need to understand the details, because the details help make the story. So what you have are the Philistines, and you have the Israeli, the Jews. And they are are against each other. They don't mess well. I mean, we see that even going on in our own era, in our our own period of time. There had been animosity between them. And the Philistines are coming in the one way that they could come into Israel, and there's this valley. And then the Israelites are gathered over here. They realize that the invasion could be imminent. And that if they were to get this stronghold, they could control and have greater access to Israel. So this is a huge battle. And they have the two armies lined up. The Philistines on one hill, you have the valley in between, and then you have the the Jews on the other side, the Jewish army. 
and you see that there, there's some anxiety that is developed because they understand what is at stake. And they're coming out day after day, and they're hearing this guy, Goliath. Goliath is just a behemoth of a man. I, I, I picture him as one of those big, giant pro rustlers, you know? And he's just coming out and making these big boasts. And there's great anxiety and fear at what could happen. And see, that's the thing that each of us have to deal with as believers in Christ. See, if, if you're a believer, we have this tendency to boast our confidence in God, but then we step into everyday life. And we encounter situations that test our obedience and our confidence. And we need to understand this anxiety, this, the struggles that we have with anxiety. We have this anxiety because what happens is, is when we see a situation that doesn't fall within the ideal in which it should, our mind starts to amplify and our imagination starts running rampant. We talked about this before. Uh, we see this with children. And my, I have uh, two little boys and uh, my two boys, when I put them to bed at night and you close the door and you hear, Daddy, what? Can you turn on the light, please? They're scared. Now, is there anything for them to be scared of? No. It's the dark right? It's just the dark. And see what happens in the dark when they can't see things, their imagination starts to happen. They start thinking about what that is, what that is, what is that? What, what could that be? What is that sound? And everything starts looking differently. And see, that's what happens when situations come into our lives that don't fit the ideal of what we think it should be. Our imagination starts running rampant and we have to, to rein it in. We have to understand this anxiety that can quickly derail our confidence in God. And not just anxiety, but we have, we have adversaries that come against us, that boast against us. We struggle with anxiety and we struggle with all of these different adversaries. Adversaries that we are struggling with and that we are dealing with. We strive against adversaries. And we have Goliath. Now, Goliath is just a behemoth guy. You know, texts say, some of the Old Testament texts uh, say that he was nine foot seven. Some say that he was six foot nine. Um, either way, he was a big guy. I'm inclined to think of the, the bigger of them because when we look at his armor and what he's dressed in, and the guy's armor weighs 125 pounds. This is a big dude. He's carrying a, a spear with an iron, or a bronze like edge, like point on it. I don't know what the arrowhead, whatever that is. A sparehead, thank you. Spearhead, it's 15 pounds. Can you throw 15 pounds? I mean, 15 pounds. I mean, how big's a shot put? And you see those guys, and this guy's got a spear that he can chuck with accuracy. And he's got a big giant, I mean, a bronze helmet. I mean, he's got all the coat of mail that's on him. He's even got armor on his legs. This is a big, scary guy. And he is coming at them. He is standing out there saying, bring out anybody to fight with me. And at times, you would see within ancient history, different armies would have a representative from each army that would fight, that would save time and money, and say, whoever wins, you know, it's kind of by default, you, got, you win, then, then all of our army will be subject to you. And that's what's going on right now. And Israel is just, the, the leaders of Israel are scared. They're terrified. And they hear this guy coming out making all these boasts. He's not just boasting about himself. He is going after Israel's God. He is calling him out. And you know, there are going to be people that you face in your life that are going to come after your face, that are going to make boasts that if God were real, he could stop me from dropping this. Or if God were real, he would show up in this part of my life when I demanded him to because God is totally has to listen to me. So we have these people that make these big giant boasts about God and they like to flaunt their sin and it, and it bothers us internally. 
It, it, and it struggles, and we lose our confidence. God, why don't you act? Why don't you intercede here? And see, we, we face these things. These are difficulties that we go through. We, we struggle with anxiety. We strive against our adversaries. And then what we often do is when God doesn't show up in the way that we think he should, we seek alternatives to fight for us or to add to it. Or, or to, when we see a step of faith, we feel like it's not complete enough, that we have, to, we have to do something else to manufacture God in essence. And we have, I mean, and we see like David, David is this young man, he's about 14 or 15 years old, that he's taking a step of faith. He's coming out of here and he's ready to battle. And he's like, he's going to go to war with Goliath. Saul is, is behind it, which is crazy that the king is, this little, he's allowing this boy to go into battle for him. That's how terrified Saul is, by the way. And Saul is in, and uh, David is ready to go into battle. He's got his five smooth stones and he's got his sling. And he's like, I'm ready to go. I'm going to take him in the name of the Lord. And Saul's like, great. Wait, you're not dressed appropriately. You got to put on this armor. You know, that's not enough, your faith. You got to add to it. See, what we think is, is that we have to add to what God is doing. We have to, to try to apologize or come up with other ways to add to it, to somehow substantiate it. Because the reality is, is we don't have enough faith. See, that's what happens in our struggles. We, we struggle with anxiety, we strive against our adversaries, and we seek alternatives against the Lord. Now, these are the things that can derail us. And I, I want to pause for a second. I want to look at the, the different faces of confidence and how in these faces, in these characters in Scripture, we can see ourselves and how we respond to situations like this, the different faces of confidence. Well, first of all, we have scared, some are scared like Saul. Saul's terrified. Now, Saul is a good-looking dude. Last week we said that he looks like, uh, what, what, what do we say he looks like? He looks like Thor. Who's Thor? The actor? What's his name? Oh, Chris, is it Chris or Liam? Chris, right? Chris Hemsworth. He, to me, Saul is Chris, Chris Hemsworth. It says he's a head taller than everybody else. He's a good-looking guy. He's well-built. He looks like a king. He's this handsome guy. They said there's nobody else as handsome as he is. And if, according to the reports of women's faces that I've seen when Hemsworth comes on TV, I would agree. Okay? It's a good-looking guy. He looks like the king. But Saul, even though he's a head taller than everybody else, he has heard and seen the stories about what God has done. He sees this big adversary in front of him, and his knees are knocking. He is trembling. He is scared. He's not leading his people into battle going, let's take him. He's, he's deathly afraid, and he's scared, so scared that he's, he's willing to pay and basically reward anybody that goes into the battle. So much so that he lets a 14 or 15-year-old boy go to battle for him. So many of us, though, are scared like Saul. When we interact with situations, we see it. We'll let other people go to battle for us. We're afraid to step in. And God is saying, no, where's your confidence at? Now, we could be scared like Saul, or we, could be, we, or we see people that their confidence, I mean, they gloat like Goliath. These are people that are railing against God. They're so proud of their life. They're so proud of their lifestyle, their strength, their accomplishment, all that they've been able to do and accomplish that they don't need God. And they're gloating in their life and all that they've done apart from God. And we see that with Goliath. He is gloating. He's boasting in his own strength. He cares nothing for God. He cares for nothing that he can't see or understand. He's, he's, matter of fact, he's boasting in his own gods. 
See, there are many of those people that we encounter that are like that, that are just boastful, that are proud. I don't know if you've seen this picture, but um, going, what's going on right now in all the media with uh, the Planned Parenthood videos, I don't know if you guys have seen those videos that have, been, that have come out. And uh, I was reading an article, and it had a picture of Gloria Steinem, who is a feminist icon. Uh, she's 81 years old, and she's wearing a T-shirt. And it's not just women are talking about having an abortion, but she wears a T-shirt. She, ha- she says she's celebrating that she had an abortion. It says, I had an abortion, and she's got a big smile on her face. It's celebrating a culture of death. And it's interesting as we look within our society that we see those people that are so much for uh, sexual not, uh, sexual amorality, if you will, or immorality, are also the same people that boast in this culture of death that we're going through. We see people that boast in it, and that cause us to wonder, what are we supposed to do? How do we interact with that? I mean, I remember used to, uh, when, when I was younger, I remember uh, in, a, in a newer believer, and I had just kind of become pro-life. I had actually been pro-choice as a young man, because I, I believed that you can't tell a woman what to do. And then someone looked at me very simply, and they said, do you believe in murder? And I said, no. He goes, why do you believe that a woman can murder a baby? And that caused me to do a 180, totally turned and went in a different direction. And as I've, I've grown and I've seen, and I've, I've seen the different arguments, and people say, we have to convince everyone that it's a life. And if we do so, then people will turn against it. There's been some articles that come out recently, and they said, let's just drop the charade. He goes, I'm a pro-choice, very pro-choice liberal. And he goes, you know what? It is a life. I'm not going to boast around it anymore. Like, come on, let's quit playing around. It is a life. But I can't tell that woman what to do. And what he's saying is, is that that woman is God of her body. She can remove it from the purpose in which God intended it. And we've tried it. we see that within our society today. People are trying to remove all of these different things in the purpose and ways for which they intended. And, they, and they, they struggle against it and they rail against it. They have to come up with all of this strange reasoning of why. And not just say that it's a child. It's a baby. And this, even this guy said, he goes, it's strange to me that you see other people that are standing on the street saying it's not a child, and they aborted their baby, but yet when they want that baby, suddenly the baby's in the woman. It's a baby. He's like, let's quit playing games here. It always is. It's just about whether it's convenient for you or not, or what you want or not, or you, whoever has got over their body or not. Now, again, people that, that have gone through that, it's a horrific thing, and we want to make sure we are compassionate we all have sin. We all have struggles. We've all done things in our lives that we are not proud of. We need, these people need grace and compassion and love, not throwing rocks. But we see, though, that there are people that gloat, and some people actually do boast. They're proud of their sin and what they've done. And we have to say, God, how do I respond to that? What do you expect from me? So we, we see people that are confident, and they, or they're their confidence, I mean, they're scared like Saul. They have no confidence. They gloat like Goliath. They have misplaced confidence. And we have other people, though, that are envious like Eliab. Now, Eliab, uh, we see them. Matter of fact, Scott actually talked about him in our uh, communion time today. Eliab is the oldest of, of Jesse's sons. He's good-looking. Matter of fact, he's so good-looking. When he shows up, Samuel goes, hey, this is the next, he's thinking to himself, this is the king right here. Look at this guy. He looks like a king. He acts like a king. And that's where God says to him, no, man looks at the outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. God's always about the heart. And it's even now, as we're talking about what's going on and we're seeing all the different political and, uh, debates that are going on, everybody's asking themselves, do they look presidential? 
But God's coming back and saying, it's not about the outward appearances, what a great order they are, their charismatic personality, or who they have backing them. It's their heart. Where's the heart? Where is your heart with God? It's not about your just outward conformity and putting on your face going, hey, it's a great day. I'm happy. Everything's fine. I mean, does God really have your heart or are you just putting on a face? God wants your heart. And see, Adam, see Eliab, he's, he's struggling. He's wanting to know why he got passed over. And he goes to war and then his little brother shows up. Now, um, if there's, I mean, maybe you grew up in a family. Did you ever have a problem with your little brother? Did you? No, never. I, I know that um, in my family that was the case because I was the little brother. <laughs> and uh, my brother and I didn't always have the best relationship in the world. He wanted to watch the Andy Griffith show when he came home. I wanted to watch USA Cartoon Express. And he was over 300 pounds, and guess who won? Guess who suffered breathing for a little while? Uh, and he would beat up on me. And I'm sure it, it, there, was some, there was animosity between siblings, Right? You ever gone through that? Had sibling or uh, animosity that's gone on? Or you see that in your home? And what's going on there? I mean, last night I got to see, uh, we went out and we were uh, seeing my kids in their costumes. And, and my, uh, my older son is holding the hand of my younger son. And the woman was like, she goes, oh, isn't that cute? My wife goes, right now it's cute. <laughs> Come back in 25 minutes and you'll see if it's still cute. Because they're not going to be holding hands anymore. And, but see, so Eliab is at the battle. He's afraid just like everybody else. His little brother shows up and makes some boast. And he's like, what are you doing here? He's envious because he knows that he got promised, David got promised kingship. And he's, he's not even thinking about confidence. He's too busy being envious. And there are other people that we see around us with these great things that God seems to be doing through them. And rather than our confidence being in God going, yay, God, wow, you're accomplishing a great mission through that person, we go, why aren't you doing that for me? I'm jealous. Why can't I have that? I want that. They got it. I want just a little bit. I don't need to have as much. I'll just take a little bit. Is that asking too much? And rather than focusing on and enjoying and delighting in what God has done, we're too busy being envious. And we have no confidence because we feel like we've been slighted by God. We're not resting in God. And I'm reminded of uh, John chapter 21, which illustrates this really perfectly about being envious. I mean, Peter and John are before Jesus. Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. He is interacting with John, Peter. Remember, Peter had denied the Lord three times, and now Jesus is restoring him three times. And after he tells him this stuff, he sees John, and he goes, Lord, what about him? Even then, he's like, yeah, I got this, but what about him? See, we compare ourselves all the time, and Jesus goes, if he's to remain until I come... What's that to you? Follow me. You don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Don't think about how other people have been, I've blessed them and what I've called them to do. You do what I have called you to do. See, when we compare ourselves with one another, it kills contentment and it kills our confidence. Comparison kills contentment and it kills our confidence because we start comparing ourselves with what everybody else has. And that's what that Eliab is doing. He's comparing himself with everybody else, especially his little brother. Why don't I have that? You little, you little sneaky guy. What are you doing? What are you doing here? I know your heart. David's like, what did I do? So we have to make sure that we're not being envious like Eliab. Instead, we need to, we need to depend on the Lord like David. 
need to depend on the Lord like David. That's one of the things that I love about David is just he is completely depending upon the Lord. He is completely depending upon the Lord. He is, he is coming before Saul, and he is starting to say his credentials. And he is saying that, hey, I have killed tiger, I've killed lions, I've killed bears, I'm going to kill this guy in the same way. This guy is boasting against God. And he comes forward, and I love his boast. In verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. That's some confidence right there. He knew that who he was serving, who he had with him, his dependence was in God, not in his armor, not in his abilities, not in his strength, but in God's and God's alone. Where's your confidence at? Where's your confidence? Is it in your ability? Is it in your bank account? Maybe, you're, maybe in your giftedness. Maybe that's in your, your, uh, the, the schools that you went to, past ministries you've done. Maybe you're a great orator, a great teacher. Where's your confidence at? It can't be in any of those things. It can't be in your talent. It has to be in God and God alone who gave that to you. So we have to make sure that we depend on the Lord like David. Depend on the Lord like David. As we seek to rebuild the shattered confidence, we also need to make sure that we explore the defining characteristics of godly confidence. The defining characteristics of godly confidence. Now we're going to look at David. We're going to examine David. He is confident. What can make this young guy so confident? I mean, he just has this, it's not just self-esteem that he has and he feels good about himself, no. He's confident in the Lord as God. And we see that, or how can we have that same confidence that he has? Now, the first thing that we can see here is it requires us to be spirit-empowered. Spirit-empowered. And here, here's where I see that. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. This is David being anointed for, uh, as the future king of Israel. Saul has been rejected. David is being anointed uh, to be his successor, and he's a boy. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't indwell believers as it does now. See, when you trust in Christ now, God gives his spirit to you. He gives it to Craig Palmquist. He gives it to Dennis Ducharme. gives it to Nydia. He gives it to Salamani. gives it to Ezekiel and Pascal. He gives the spirit of God within us to help make us like Jesus, to empower us so his life will be in us, that we will do the things that he did. In that, we will love the least, the lost, and the lowest. God wants us to do that, to to sacrifice ourselves, to give up our desires, to take up our crosses daily, to die to ourselves, to be willing to interact with those who are are struggling and going through a hard time that everyone else in society is seemingly rejected. See, it takes the Spirit of God to do that within us, to make us like little Jesuses, if you will. So we need that spirit, his, God's Holy Spirit within us. Now, as a believer, when you receive Christ, God gives his spirit to you. And it's like putting an inner tube in a tire. But you have to make sure that inner tube is filled. And so we have to be filled with the spirit of God to be able to, to handle all the difficulties and obstacles that we have going through life. And how do we fill ourselves with the spirit of God? By, by offering ourselves up, surrendering to God, by taking in the word of God, by being with the people of God, by worshiping and singing unto God, by giving our tithes and our offerings, by, by praying. These are all spiritual things that help us be filled with the spirit of God. It also means taking up our cross and dying to our sinful nature, our sinful desires that war against us. And each one of us in this room have sinful desires that exhibit themselves in different ways. We all have 
have. Dents of disobedience. Dents of disobedience. Things that keep us from, I mean, that seem natural in and of ourselves. And we could say we were born this way. And it could be stealing. It could be, you could have an attraction to children or an attraction to someone of the same gender. Or you could have a desire just to be engaging in pornography and have all these different adulterous relationships. Or be an alcoholic or a drug addict. Every one of us has a dent of disobedience. And I've shared this before, and I'm going to do it really quick, but imagine an 18-wheeler. An 18-wheeler is a a big truck, and it has on the back of it a a trailer. And on the trailer are all these different cars. And the driver of that truck is told that he can drive anywhere that he wants to, except this one place that says, do not enter death ahead. And so he drives everywhere else, and he comes back, and he says, I want to know what's there. There's something there that I want. I, I want to know why I can't go there. There's something that I'm missing that's being kept from me. So he decides to drive his truck through it, not realizing it's on the edge of a cliff. When he drives off that cliff, all the cars that were in the back of that rolled out and got dented in different ways. Some had the roof broken in, some had their axles broken, some had doors, windshields, you name it. See, Adam was the driver of that truck. When Adam sinned in the garden, we were in Adam, as the scripture says, for in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. In other words, we all died with him, and we were all born with a disposition to disobedience that each one of us exhibits in different ways. This is why some people are more prone to alcoholism. Some people have pornography addictions. Other people have attraction to children or animals or stealing or lying or same-sex attraction. See, these are all the things that come from our sinful nature that Jesus came to save us from. If your understanding of the fall is off, your understanding of Jesus will be off. And what he came to do, he came to set us free and put his spirit within us to put to death the misdeeds of our sinful nature and embrace him. And, our, and we can't do that on our own. It's not by picking up our proverbial moral bootstraps. It is by t- having the spirit of God create the person of God, the son of God within us. So we have to be spirit empowered, but that's not all. We need to make sure that we have a, a holy boldness. We need to make sure that we are stating our faith. See, I love what David does. David goes, I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts. He states his faith. It reminds me of the story of a classmate of mine named J.R. Wink. J.R. Wink. He uh, lived across from me when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. And uh, one night he was walking on Oak Street with his girlfriend. Uh, it was night and a guy comes up and sticks a knife right in his face. He goes, give me your money. And he's telling us a story. I'm like, what'd you do? He's like, I prayed for the guy. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I put my hand up. And I went, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you convict this man of his sin right now and that he might leave us. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. And I said, what'd you do? I goes, I looked up. I said, what did he do? He goes, he stood there. I said, what'd you do then? He goes, I prayed more. Father, <laughs> he starts praying for this guy to be convicted of his sin. And he goes, he's praying for him to be convicted, and he's, he's calling on the name of Jesus, and he put his name down. I said, what did the guy do then? He goes, he stopped, put his knife in his pocket, and he walked away. See, as believers in Christ, sometimes we have to state our faith, who it is that we serve, that I am a follower of the name, I mean, I'm the follower of Jesus Christ. I've surrendered my life to him, his blood and his body I mean, we're broken for me, cleansed over my sins, enabled me to be righteous in the sight of God. And I come at you now, not in the name of Jesus Christ, I mean, not in my own name, but in the name of Jesus Christ who bought me. So we have to state our faith in who Jesus is. It's one of the ways that we fight against it, and that's what David does. And sometimes, though, it means that we need to stand alone if necessary. Stand alone if necessary. 
Um, it, I, you might be familiar with that hymn, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. You guys remember that hymn? Some of you are familiar with it. Where he says, though none go with me, still I will follow. You know that hymn actually originated not in the United States, but in India. And it was about a man who was actually being taken to his execution, who was a follower of Jesus. And as, as he was being taken away, ready to be executed, they, he kept saying, though none go with me, I'm going to follow him. So we have to be willing to stand alone. We're good when there's a crowd. We're good when there's a crowd. Peter was great when there was a crowd even standing in front of Jesus. Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I would even die with you. And then the crowd disperses. And it's just him with this small little servant girl. And he denies. See, we need to make sure that as followers of Jesus, I mean, David was willing to stand alone. The whole army are cowards. And he's willing to stand alone. Are you willing to stand alone to follow Jesus? Are you willing to follow him no matter what? Even if everybody else gives in to whatever sin and says it's okay and it's all right, are you willing to say no? That's a question that God has for us. I mean, that's David did. We have to do the same as well. We need to stand alone if necessary. I'm reminded of Martin Luther. Yesterday was Halloween, but it was in uh, October... 31st in 1517, that a 33-year-old monk in Wittenberg, Germany, nailed to the door what is known as the 95 Theses. And he was a young monk. He was actually asking for reformation because he'd encountered this situation with a guy named Johann Tetzel, who was a Dominican friar who was actually going around basically raising money for a building project by promising people that if they would give money to this building project, that their loved one could be get out of a jail-free card from purgatory. That's a great offer. Put in a couple of coins. I can get my aunt and uncle out of purgatory. It's a good deal. And so Luther's like, um, that's nowhere in scripture. So he, he writes this in Latin. And he has the, actually not just that point. It kind of triggered other points and struggle, things that he had struggles he'd seen, contradictions. And there were 95 points of contention that he wanted to talk about and debate with other uh, academics, if you will. And, and the, the door, the church door, was basically a bulletin board for the scholars to talk with one another. And he wanted to just talk about this and help reform it. But when they saw it, they recognized that this is a big deal. So they translated it into German. Next thing you know, it's in all the people, uh, people's hands. And then it actually, within a few weeks, it was within the Pope's desk. The Pope demands that he recant. He'd repent. I mean, this is the most powerful man in the known world coming after him. Finally, without, fast forward three years, he is brought in what is known as the Diet of Worms, which means basically it's a council in the city of Worms, Germany. And he is brought and he is asked two questions. You see these books on the table there? Are they yours? He says, yes. Are you ready to recant and repent of any of those things and refute them? And he goes, no. And he, he makes this boast. And I want to show this to you. He says, let's call that up. We call that up? Oh, we don't have a quote. Okay, I'll have to give the quote to you. I thought we had it. Um, he says this. Unless convinced by the testimony of Scripture of right reason, for I trust neither the Pope nor cancels inasmuch as they have often erred and contradicted one another, I am bound by conscience, held captive by the word of God and the scriptures I have quoted. I neither can nor will recant anything, for it is neither right nor safe to act against conscience. God help me. Amen. See, he stood on the truths of scripture. He stood, he, would, he was willing to stand alone by himself against what everybody else was telling him. Because he's willing to stand on the promises of God. He's willing to stand alone, but he's also willing to stand and be, and be sure of, these, of God's promises. He was sure of what God would do. He didn't understand completely, 
But he knew that if he honored God, God would honor him. And that's what David was. He acted boldly because I believe that he knew he would be the future king. He had been promised it, and he was sure that God would bring it about, and it gave him a boldness. If God has promised to be with you and never forsake you, that should make you bold. Are you bold? Where is your confidence? In yourself? In the culture? In what's going on politically? Or is it in what Jesus himself has done? Don't look into the culture. You'll get down. You'll get, dis- you'll, get, you'll get totally depressed. Look to who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has promised within his word and find your confidence in him. And he has promised to be victorious. He says, I have overcome the world. He has overcome it. And he, we are overcomers in and through him. Are you an overcomer? Where is your confidence? Where is your boast? Are you boasting in him or are you boasting in yourself and your abilities? Or what the greater culture says is acceptable. Because you know what? This world will pass away. But God's word will never pass away. It will endure for eternity. It will go on. And there are some people that have married the spirit of the age because they want to be more acceptable. They don't want to have to take a stand and struggle. But if you are married to the spirit of the age, you will be a widow in the age to come. We need to hold fast to God and his word. And first it involves believing in his son. That's what God has told us to do. Believe in his son who died on the cross for our sins. God sent his son. And David is the precursor for that. That da- Matter of fact, Jesus would come of the lineage and of the house of David. That he is brought forth and God was bringing him forth and he was going to bring forth his son who is a man after God's own heart to pay the price for our sins on the cross, for yours and mine. That he paid the price for your sins and mine so that we in him could have forgiveness and, the, and, and be removed from the wrath of God because the wrath of God went on to him that we could be clean and we can be victorious in and through him and what he has done. And if you believe that, then you need to surrender your life. And the scripture is very clear that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is the Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For it is with the mouth one confesses and is saved, and it's with the heart one believes and is justified. Call on the name of the Lord and he will save you. Repent of your sins and embrace him and he will transform you, give you purpose and meaning and he will do something within your life that is more amazing than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you alone are our confidence. Whom have we in heaven but you? Lord, we know according to the testimony of your word, that without you we have nothing. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we put our boast in the name of the Lord, our God. And Lord, though we know our father and our mother may forsake us, that you will receive us. That you are our true north. That you are the God who loves us. You are the God who gives us courage and boldness. Lord, help our confidence to be in you. Help us not to be terrified of the things that are going on around us, but help us to realize that this world is not our home. Lord, forgive us when we are more addicted to our comforts and our gifts rather than delighting in the giver and the creator who has made us and blessed us. Lord, help us to use the abilities and the things that we have to proclaim the glory of your name so that others who are lost might be saved. And Lord, no matter what someone has done, no matter what they've engaged in, Lord, show yourself to be the forgiving God. Because Lord, we know that we're all sinners, that we're all equally condemned in the sight of God. 
But yet, Lord, we know that you were the God who sent your son, who was condemned on our behalf. And now that in and through him, there is no now condemnation. We can be received, forgiven, loved, and treasured, and made clean and whole. So, Lord, I pray for this group of people that are here today. I pray that you touch them. I pray that you glorify your name in them. And I pray, Lord, that you take those who are are lost, that you might give them a new heart and a new reason for living and show them who you are, that you are the God who cares, that you are the God who saves, and you are the God who loves us. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for what you've done and what you're going to do. Lord, give us boldness for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.